Hello listeners, my name is Tashara and welcome to another episode of the LSE Focal Point podcast. Today I'm very excited to be joined by Phil McIntosh. Phil is the Chief Economist at NASDAQ. Prior to his time at NASDAQ, he was the Head of Trading Strategy at Virtue Financial, as well as the Global Head of Trading Strategy at Credit Suisse. He holds a Bachelor's Degree in Commerce from the University of New South Wales and a Master's Degree in Quantitative Finance from the University of Technology in Sydney. Phil, how are you doing today? I'm good, how are you? I'm great, thanks for asking. So to kick things off, could you tell us a little bit more about your journey to becoming the Chief Economist at NASDAQ? Yeah, I mean, as you, I guess, told everybody already, I'm Australian, I did my schooling in Australia, but I've had a pretty long career moving slowly towards this job. I actually started at school doing accounting. So I obviously had an interest in math and finance and numbers. But once I started working, I realized that wasn't exactly the kind of finance and math that I wanted to do. That's why I actually went back and did my master's degree. And ever since then, I've been slowly moving closer to, I guess, proper finance. So I started managing assets and being a portfolio manager. I've built algorithms that that work orders in the market. And that made me a market structure expert, which is actually how I got the opportunity to come to the US about 20 years ago. And ever since I got to the US, I, I actually started to focus more and more on being a specialist in that stuff. So moving to NASDAQ has been partly just to expand my, I guess, my experience and my work into the macroeconomics that I did back at school. So I kind of come full circle in the sense that I'm really in the middle of finance right now, working in the exchange with all the listing companies around me. That's great. Very interesting journey indeed. And you mentioned a little bit about how you wanted to get closer to the macroeconomics of things. Is there any more about what drew you to your current role in particular? I mean, obviously what drew me to finance was the fact that I I just like math at school. I like physics. I like all of those analytical subjects. And so I've kind of, I mean, I, I, I guess during my career journey, I've always tried to leverage my strengths which is my more analytical side. Ironically, now I, I write a lot of research and I present a lot on stage. So um, I'm not just doing math, but in fact, mostly that's the team that's doing the math. But my interest drove my career a lot, but then also just opportunities. So I had an opportunity when I was young to go work in London, and that was fantastic because I got to see other companies in a bigger city. It exposed me to financial services. I got to work in a bank on a trade floor. And that, that really was one of those days where I walked onto the trade floor and thought, I would like to do this in my future. And so that kind of directed me to go back to university and get a quant finance degree and, you know, get really close to finance rather than just being in, an, in, in the finance department. I wanted to actually manage money and be involved in the investment process. Great. And you mentioned how part of your work is analytical, part of it is also qualitative and writing and presenting. What tasks are involved in your daily work? Yeah, I mean, if you think about NASDAQ as a whole, so we have a bunch of different businesses. We obviously list companies. Um, So we have all of the issuers and the kind of things that they want to learn about is a lot of macroeconomics, what's going to drive their profit and loss for the year, what things are going to hurt their revenues for the year. We run a lot of markets. So that's where I I probably do a lot of microeconomics, looking at how we can incentivize market makers and make sure that when they're making really tight spreads for investors, they're rewarded for it, um, that our markets are the most attractive markets to make tight spreads on. We have a, a data business that helps asset allocators work out who to allocate assets to and which stocks they want to pick. And we also have a technology business that builds a lot of surveillance software. So crime fighting software, market manipulation, search software. I I, mean, I sort of think of our team because we're the research team at NASDAQ touches all of those bits of the business. 
So on a day-to-day basis, I will help pieces of the different bits of the business with what I'd like to think of is yeah, that, that when they get a hard question that needs a little bit of statistics or a lot of statistics and some cloud compute, that's when we engage our team and try and work out for the customer um, what the answer to the question is. And so on a day-to-day basis, there's a little bit of management, there's a little bit of doing research and a lot of talking to customers and a little bit of talking up on stage to industry groups as well and regulators. Great. Sounds like a lot of variety indeed. So a lot of interesting things going on in markets right now. So let's discuss some of these things. In a climate uh, right now where there's a lot of stagflation, what do you think central banks will do where war causes inflationary pressures via supply chain bottlenecks? Yeah, so I'm I'm not sure I agree that there's stagflation in the market right now. I I think if anything, we actually have an overheating economy globally, especially in developed markets. Obviously, most of the world is seeing multi-decade records of inflation and that's because of COVID but it's because there's been supply chain shortages and there's a lot of demand coming through because of all the stimulus that people have been paid and so we really do have an overheated economy so at the moment I don't think stagflation is a near risk I think if anything we have the the classic overheated economy that's why lots of governments around the world are talking about raising rates because that's a classic way to use monetary policy to shift people from spending to saving and slow the spending down and start to release some of the pressure on goods and services and start to release some of the pressure on inflation. And so I think right now, really, stagflation is, is potentially a future risk with the war in Ukraine. It's a potential future risk if the monetary policy starts to really bite, as well as some of the stimulus running out. So people have been paid a whole lot of money to sit at home with COVID. But looking at the data, it looks like some of those savings have started to run out. And now people are starting to come back to work and they're starting to spend and budget like they used to. So less demand for flat screen screen TVs means less of the flat screen TVs on boats, less stuck at ports in LA. Over time, your prices should come. The other thing that's driving, I guess, the stagflation talk is the fact that wages are going up. And um, part of that's because there's just not enough labor in the labor force right now. And part of that is because a lot of people have not come back to work since they stopped for COVID, whether that's because they're worried about catching COVID at work, whether some of the jobs have changed because a lot of the service industries aren't back yet because the the actual customers aren't going back and doing service spending. It is kind of up for debate, but the latest data actually shows that people are actually starting to come back into jobs. The leisure and hospitality sector, which was really badly hit by COVID, is starting to grow really quickly. And so I think the expectation is that the jobs that are being created now are more like the jobs we used to have. And so the dislocation of labor is um, actually starting to fix itself. And so the pressure on wages should come down as well. So with all of that, we should have less pressure on inflation. Obviously, we're tackling it from a monetary perspective. Fiscally, we're not specifically tackling it, but we're not still shoveling fiscal money into people's bank accounts. And also the labor force is starting to go back to a more normal level where the education and the skill set will match the jobs. And so there should be a better matching of supply and demand going forward. And hopefully we actually end up with lower inflation, still good growth, because we've got pretty strong underlying growth in the economy. Definitely. And you mentioned about cutting rates. Do you think that the way to induce growth should be through banks cutting rates or through hiking rates to curb inflation? Yeah, so I mean, obviously, all of the central banks in the developed world at the moment are rising rates because where a lot of countries have got negative real rates, some of the countries in Europe have negative actual yields on their bonds. And that's not it's not great for asset allocation. Um, It's actually usually I think it's expected to be expansionary. And when we've got an overheated economy, it makes no sense to be expansionary. It's only contributing to the inflation. So I think actually most countries are going to be hiking rates at least to get back to the normal 
rate of interest, that might not be as positive as it was back in the 90s, just because the demographics have changed. The working age population is they're getting older, there's more retirees, and that tends to slow spending because retirees obviously don't earn as much money, but they don't need to buy houses, they don't need to buy new furniture. If anything, they're downsizing. And so that slows the economy naturally, which tends to slow um, GDP a little bit as well, because there's less workers per head of population, which tends to take the pressure off inflation which tends to mean that interest rates don't need to go as high to slow everything down. And so I think in reality, we're going to have see rates going up for the next 12 months, maybe 24 months. Even with what's going on in Ukraine with the price of oil, that's going to add to inflation rather than take away from it. It could take away from growth a bit, but it's going to add to inflation. So I think rates are going up in the short term, at least back to a more normal level, which would be good because really we need to have a little bit of capacity for the next um, recession or downturn so that we can stimulate again. And particularly within emerging markets, because we have discussed developed markets quite a bit, how do you think the inflation dynamics will evolve, particularly once again, going back to supply chain issues? Do you think these will persist in developing emerging markets as well? Yeah, I think um, emerging markets are going to be interesting, just looking at the currency dependence on the US dollar as well. So the US dollar strengthens a lot. All of their debt is actually harder to pay off. And so that could create some different strains not necessarily inflationary strains, but it could definitely create some fiscal strains in their economy trying to finance the debt levels that they've got. But at the same time, a lot of those countries still do have a cost benefit in terms of manufacturing. So there's a chance that they actually, they've underperformed the last you know, five to 10 years. There's a chance that with COVID going away and the supply chain risks to their economies going away, um, that they can start to invest in manufacturing and in producing, I guess, enhanced goods and actually start to grow their economy, grow their GDP per head and grow their wealth. I think one of the biggest, I guess, challenges for the world is the environmental challenges. And obviously for those countries to grow, sometimes that's going to be using carbon intensive energy. And that's really a problem for the whole world to solve, not for the emerging markets themselves. I imagine sitting in their shoes and watching the fact that developed countries have used a lot of carbon energy so far, and they haven't really done that, it's going to make it an interesting debate trying to get them to slow down and convert to environmentally sensitive energy use. So it's probably up to the developed markets economies to, I guess, cost effective renewables so that they can be installed in the emerging markets. And and maybe that actually will short circuit some of the the longer term problems of building coal power, fire station power, coal fired power stations for those economies to build their industry out. Definitely. And some uh, very interesting perspective regarding the environmental aspect of it and some challenges ahead. uh, We've discussed a lot about inflation. Let's move on to valuations. What is your view on tech valuations at the moment? Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's interesting talking to investors about something simple like a price earnings multiple, because we are at levels that at least before the, the last couple of weeks, we came off highs, which we really hadn't been at except for the tech bubble in the last few decades. And so a lot of people are like, hey, this is just like the tech bubble. The price earnings multiple of the market really only gets to the levels like this when we're in a tech bubble. The difference with the tech bubble was it was in the late 90s when interest rates were 5 to 7%. If you look at valuations, and you think, if you think about valuations from an accounting perspective or from a research analyst perspective, you've got a discount factor. You've got future earnings. And so a growth company has a higher valuation in low interest rate environments because most of its earnings come five or 10 years from now. And those earnings are getting bigger and bigger every year. And so the discount factor becomes less of a drag as the earnings kind of grow bigger than the the interest rate expense or the discount factor in the market. So obviously, as interest rates are starting to go up, which we talked about, you would expect the valuations to be pulled down, the multiple compression. 
Um, what we're actually seeing, what we saw last year, is the companies have managed to grow earnings at about the same rate as the multiple compression, which has held the markets at the levels it's at right now. And the big difference, I think, this time to the 90s is, like we talked about with the demographics, we don't really expect rates to need to get back to 70 Back, get back to 7%. 7% would be very contractionary given the demographics, given the aging population this decade. And so I think because the valuations right now are actually pretty close to supported by current interest rates, if we can keep growing earnings, then we don't necessarily see the bubble pop to you to use your term about a tech bubble. And the other thing about tech companies this time is a lot of the tech companies that are big actually have big earnings too. So back in the 90s, a lot of those companies were um, growing new businesses, didn't actually have profits, um, and went back to the market to try and refinance so that they could keep growing their business. Now we've got a lot of big tech companies that have very solid business models, positive revenues, profitable businesses. And so their earnings, their valuation is supported by their earnings to a large degree. So I think it's a little different this time. And I think the thing to remember is you've you've got earnings that support the valuations of companies broadly. If interest rates don't go up a whole lot, then valuations won't have a whole lot of pressure either. Definitely some positive words for investors. And moving on to the U.S., how do you think the Biden midterms could change the geopolitical landscape? Yeah, good question. I mean, obviously, it's going to change the political landscape. The current forecasts have potentially the Democrats losing either the House or the Senate or both. Uh, and we know how that works because we've seen it in the last few cycles. It just means there's going to be a lot less regulation, mm. a lot less things to actually get passed. I think from a geopolitical perspective, though, one thing that we've seen through the pandemic, through conflict, is that's the thing that we get bipartisan support for. So from a geopolitical perspective, it actually might bring everybody closer together. Just the geopolitics kind of overrides the domestic politics, if you like. So we will probably have less things happening locally but still the ability to agree on on international events that really matter to the world. Definitely will be interesting to see how this materializes. And earlier, you did touch upon the next recession that we could possibly face. Do you think that central banks, particularly in developed countries, are losing their credibility given an inability to build a sufficient buffer in what could be the next recession? Yeah, it's a super interesting question. And I mean, to a degree, the central banks have had one crisis after another in the last 10 years. I mean, obviously, the the credit crisis was a big deal. And the central banks did a lot to save the economy from just turning into a depressionary spiral. So arguably, what they did in the 2008-2009 period was good for the world. And then we had the European sovereign crisis And arguably, we got through that without really killing any of the economies as well. And now we've got a a war with Russia and Ukraine. So they've they've had a lot of things to deal with. But you're right. Like we have negative real interest rates in a lot of countries. We have negative actual interest rates in some European countries. And it doesn't leave a lot of scope for stimulating with monetary policy in the future. So you're, you're right on that sense. But again, I think the natural rate of interest has come down as well. So potentially what we can do is, I mean, if you look at Japan, for instance, because they're able to keep rates low, they've been able to finance a pretty big fiscal deficit and and a lot of debt. And so I think for the developed economies, which are all aging at the same kind of rate, maybe we just have to get used to the fact that we're going to be running a little bit more debt to kind of keep the economy going. But because we have lower growth, we should have lower interest rates and it's affordable. It's I don't want to say it's modern monetary theory, but it's kind of a twist on that where the risk that we have rates go to 10 or 11% and that we can't afford to pay the interest bill um, is much lower now than it was back in the 80s and the 90s. 
Great. And definitely, I think central banks have gone through a lot in the past decade. So with that in mind, does this increase the importance of fiscal discipline going forward as a lever to pull on when economies are in downturn? Yeah, I mean, I think fiscal stimulus really kind of had a resurgence during COVID, especially in the US. And we've actually been able to see what a difference it makes. I mean, arguably, um, what we're seeing now with inflation globally is driven a lot by the US consumer. If you look at the the US consumer, because we weren't buying services, because services require human contact and everybody didn't want to do that, we've turned to buying products. That's created a real bottleneck for production and stuff, uh, you know, which is mostly imports. So we've got supply chain bottlenecks because of all of the imports coming in, which are goods. The goods sector is actually well above COVID levels. So arguably, we've kind of learned one thing in that fiscal stimulus work, which is good because we know we can use it if we have to. The point you're making is it creates a whole lot of government debt going forward. And should we worry about managing that? And I think we should worry about it. But at the same time, we had to get through COVID and we had to get through the European sovereign crisis and we had to get through the the debt crisis. I guess now we've got to get through potentially a war and some of the inflationary impacts, but growth shrinking impacts of that. If if energy prices are really high, it's going to constrain some manufacturing and, and constrain some margins. So it's going to be challenging, but I think governments, because rates get, aren't going to go up so much, we have a little bit more flexibility than we used to. Okay, and it'll definitely be interesting to see how these forces evolve as we move out of COVID-19 now. So, Phil, it's been great getting your opinion on a lot of these issues in markets right now, and it's been great hearing about your career trajectory as well. So to wrap things up, is there any advice that you'd like to give to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of think bringing it right back to the whole career point. I mean, I it, I didn't get here in a hurry. I think, I mean, I remember when I was at university, I wanted to be a CEO and I wanted to be super successful. And I've been lucky with my career. And that's important. Like I, I, I've done a few different jobs, but I like to think I've stayed at them long enough to become an expert. And I've used that expertise to leverage into the next role. And I've created directions and opportunities that I've liked the idea of and trained myself so that I've got the skill set for that next step. And so I think the lesson is like, there'll be opportunities in your career, try to take them. Obviously for me, traveling internationally and taking those opportunities was, was a big deal. Some of the moves that I've made were opportunities to learn new things, including this job. This was an opportunity to come in and meet with issuers and talk about macro, do a little bit more television than I really had ever done. But it, you know, careers take a while to develop. Try and get a North Star Ideally, that North Star for your career includes something you're really interested in, but also work out what the path is to get there and try and stick at things long enough to become an expert so that you can use that expertise in your next job. That's some great advice that I'm sure a lot of us can apply as we enter the working world. I'm sure our listeners appreciate your insights and can take a lot away from this episode. It has been a pleasure having you here today and thank you for taking the time to speak with us. And thank you to our audience for listening and stay tuned for more episodes to come.